We have been looking at the book of Joshua, and I hope you have spent some time reading it. If you haven't, don't worry. We're still only in the beginning of July. We're going to be in this book for July and August. So you have plenty of time to go back and read it and reread it and get familiar with it. And that's the best way in which you can get something out of a sermon series when we're going through a book of the Bible is to read it and read it a number of times. I'm also working my way through it with a number of individuals in our church, and they're telling me that they're finding that very helpful, just to, to be reading it and to know the stories ahead of time. This week, we are looking at the time when the children of Israel finally crossed the Jordan River. And so we have our lovely Jordan River here, and it's flowing. And um, we are going to also look at how they build a monument with stones. So we have some stones in our Jordan River here. So when worship is over, if you would like to pick up one of the stones, you're invited to take one home with you. Take a rock that represents perhaps your tribe, Take one as a reminder of God's presence and God's faithfulness in your life. And we're going to talk about monuments and memorials and why they are important. But I'd first like to sort of catch us up so that we see exactly why these people are crossing this river in the first place. The story begins as Abraham is called to faith, and, and that is the beginning of, of the people who understand God to be Yahweh, one God. And we go through a patriarchal time with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and, and God starting to institute through this family as it grows his covenant. And eventually they end up in Egypt, and it's there in Egypt that they get taken as slaves. And so now for hundreds of years, they're living as captives in Egypt in slavery. Until along comes Moses, and Moses walks them literally through the Red Sea, and they're headed towards freedom. And they have all kinds of things that happen, and they get right up to the Jordan River, and they're prepared to go in and take the land that God has given to them. And as they go in, they're going to establish homes, they're going to establish communities, they're going to establish a temple, and they send in spies to look at the land so that they can realize that God is giving them this land, and the spies come out, and they say, oh my goodness, we could never do that. That's far greater than anything that we could face, and that's much like we go through in life. We get to a place where God leads us to something, and we know that we need to make that next step. We need to move forward in our life. We need to cross the river, and we become like the children of Israel. Fear, doubt, worry, concern, all kinds of stuff starts playing in our heads. And what they did is rather than going forward, they turned around and they said, well, maybe we need a little bit more time. And for 40 years, they walked around in circles. Do you hear that? That's what we do. It's time to make a decision. It's time to act. Might be a major decision we need to make in our life. It might be a change we need to make in our life. It might be a job that we need to apply for. Or going back to school, there could be something important that we need to do. We're ready to do it. And we pause and we don't go forward, and we start to think about it and overthink it, and we become like the children of Israel, stuck for 40 years. Well, the 40 years has passed, and a lot of the people who were fearful to go in have passed away, and now Joshua is in control. And he's the new commander, and they're standing at the Jordan, and now is the time that they're finally going to cross the Jordan. And so I'm calling this message Crossing Our Jordan because that's what happens to us. 
we also get either to that place or back to that place, and we need to keep moving forward. How do we do it? How do we go across? How do we walk forward with faith and not let all those fears and worries and doubts fill our mind and stop us? I think about our nation, and there's been times, so many times as a country, that we've faced those kind of experiences. One of those was D-Day, famous important time in American history, where literally you have FDR and you have Churchill and Stalin, who have all met together and they've come up with an idea and a plan that we need to liberate Europe. And they're ready on one side of the English Channel to cross the English Channel and start what's going to be the most tumultuous thing that anybody can imagine. And Dwight Eisenhower, who has to make that final decision of, now's the time to go. Now, had we not, as a nation, made that decision, and had we not been in that, this world would be a very, very, very different place. And... We cannot even fathom what it must have been like to be the person who gives that final order to say, it's time to cross the Jordan, time to go across the English Channel. And maybe in our life we won't have that huge and most monumentous of occasions, but we still have things in our life where we know I need to finally make this decision. I need to do this. I need to go. I need to cross my Jordan. I need to move forward in life. I can't sit and pause and wait and think about it forever. And let's be honest, we all have those times in our lives. It may be some major decision that we've been wrestling with it may be a change in our life. It may be a new ministry that our church has to take on or we individually have to take on. For some people, it's physically moving. They come to a point where they decide, I need to move, or maybe they decide, I need not to move. I need to be happy and content right where God has me and know that this is where I need to be. And so as we look at Joshua taking this group of people across the Jordan, we really ask the question, how do we cross our Jordans in our own life? because we're all going to be there, and we all have been there. And it begins with a commitment, but not a commitment to ourselves or our own thinking, but a commitment to God's plan. And if we don't get this right, and we don't start with this foundation, it makes life really difficult, because then we start doubting all over the place, and we go, why in the world am I making this decision? But when we can commit our life and ourselves to God's plan and realize that we need to follow God's plan in our life and give our lives to God completely and trust Jesus as our Savior and know that he's going before us, we're able to take on things that are almost unimaginable. And I have seen that as a pastor. I've seen people in my congregation face things that is hard to even comprehend how they're able to do it. But you know how they're able to do it? They commit themselves to God's plan. In our text, we read in chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, that they are told, as soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priest, then you shall set out from your place and you shall follow it. In other words, they, the Israelites are all sitting on one side of the Jordan River, and they're told that the priests, the religious leaders, are all going to be together, and they're going to have the ark in the front, and they're going to have priests that are going to carry this ark, and they're going to go th right through the Jordan River, and all the other priests are going to be around them, and then the people are going to follow. They are literally 
through how they are following this ark, committing themselves to following God and God's plan and not themselves. Didn't say I want everybody from every family just to figure out how to go from one side of the Jordan to the other. I don't want everybody just doing it their own way. There is a plan, there is a process, there is an ark, there's someone who's out front, and in that process, you literally will be following God's leading because God will be leading through this ark. Now, the Ark of the Covenant is an interesting thing. It, it is something that you may be familiar with if you've ever seen that movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark. That's what it's about. We're talking the same ark, except that ark has all kinds of funny little Hollywood things with thunder and lightning coming out of it that didn't come out of the Ark of the Covenant. But you still get the sense of those people carrying this big box. This ark is roughly the size of our altar up here. And then there were two poles that would go through it, and men would carry it. It would take four men to carry this ark. And inside the ark, there were the Ten Commandments. There was also inside the ark a pot of manna. Manna was the bread that God had provided for the children of Israel in the wilderness. And there was also Aaron's staff. Now, if you watch Jeopardy, and the answer is those three things, you'll be able to ask the question, what was in the Ark of the Covenant? It's sort of one of those trivia questions that people always get wrong. If you remember that, you can go and ask people, what was in the Ark of the Covenant? Ten Commandments, Pot of Manna, and Aaron's staff. But why were those in this big container? They were there to remind people of God's law. The Ten Commandments, following God's way, like our following Scripture. The Pot of Manna was a reminder of God's faithfulness. Remember, God comes through for us. And Aaron's staff was all about trusting God. Just as Aaron led with the staff and the staff budded, so too we are to follow and trust God. And so the children of Israel were told, don't follow your own thinking, don't do it your own way, follow the ark because we are going to commit ourselves to God's plan here. And then the question becomes, how about us? That's fine for them thousands of years ago, but how about you and me today living in the 21st century when we're planning to cross our Jordan River, how do we know that we are committed to God's plan? And that's a very personal question for each of us. It can be an us question as together we can discern God's will or our family can discern God's will, but it also needs to come out to you and me individually in our lives. Do you ask your question, am I committed to following God's plan? Not my plan, God's plan. Doing it God's way. Putting God first in my life. Years ago, a friend of mine told me the story of how he was a young businessman and had just started in business and he was all excited because he had his big first big boy job. We've all been there, that moment in life when you're going to get the first paycheck. He had an apartment. He moved out from his parents' home. He was done with college. And he went to church and when he was in church, the particular week he remembered they had Stewardship Sunday and they started talking about tithing. And they talked about giving 10% to God. And he thought about it, and he said he was troubled, and he went home, and he sat at his table, and he figured out how much money he made and how much he gave, and he said he realized he wasn't anywhere close to tithing. He was giving 1.5%, and they talked about giving 10%. 
And he said, at that moment, as a young man, he was in his 20s, he said, I made a decision that I knew that I could commit myself to following God's plan and putting God first in my life, and I was going to do it in a very concrete way by giving 10% and trusting God and tithing. And he said, but I knew I couldn't do it immediately. So he said, what I did is I figured out the percentage I was on, and I decided every year I was going to go up a half a percent. So the next year, I gave another half percent, the next year, another half percent, until I got to 10%. And he goes, now, he was in his 50s when I got to know him, and he goes, now for years I have tithed, and so what I finally did once I was at 10% is I realized what I wanted to do is at the beginning of each month, the first check I would write out, I understand we don't necessarily do checks, but we do other things now, the first check I wrote out, I wrote my tithe. So I continued to know that I was committed to God's plan and I was putting God first in my life. He said it wasn't the tithing that made the difference. It was the conscious act that this was a way in which I was reminding myself that God came first in my life. It's important for each of us to commit to God's plan and not our own way and to find ways in your life to do that, to know that I'm putting God first. So that I'm doing God's plan and not my plan. Because when we're just doing our own plan, we can get knocked off really quickly and wonder, how in the world did I get here? And in every area of our life, when we're trusting God, we start seeing God's leading. And that's what these children of Israel started to see. They started to finally see that when they submitted themselves to doing it God's way and not their way, that God would be faithful. And that's exactly what we see. And that's why we're reading through the book of Joshua, to see how then God shows up time and time and time again. And the same thing is true in our lives. I've seen that as a pastor. I've seen it in my own life. That when people put God first in their life, they start seeing God showing up in ways they could never have imagined, but it's not only about committing to that plan. The second thing that we see that they had to do is they had to consecrate themselves, and we have to consecrate yourself, and I have to consecrate myself. Verse 5, Joshua goes to the people and says these words, a night before they're ready to go, it's a day, tomorrow, this big decision has been made, and we're going to go forward. And now Joshua says, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Consecrating yourself is different than committing to God's plan. I can be committed to God's plan, and I can say, this is a plan I'm going to follow, and then my personal life can be a complete mess. Hear me? I can know the plan of where God wants to lead me or my family or our congregation or our company. You put whatever you want in it. But then if I personally, willfully am all over the place and living any which way that I want to live and I'm not living faithfully, it doesn't matter what that plan is. My life is a complete mess. And so it's not only about committing ourselves to doing God's work. It's also not only following God's direction, but it's how we personally live and how we look at how we're living our lives. The word that's used for consecrate is the word Kadash. It's also the word for holy. You know, we sing the old hymn, holy, holy, holy. Holy, it means to be separate, to be set apart. The word is used 171 times just in the Old Testament. We talk about all kinds of things being holy or consecrated or set apart in the Old Testament. One of them is Sabbath. We're told to consecrate or make holy the Sabbath. So, 
for us as Christians, it means Sunday should look different than every other day. Yes, part of it is coming to worship and spending some time and, and worshiping God and singing songs and listening to Scripture and fellowshipping with Christians. It's one of the ways that we set aside the Sabbath. But there's many ways to set it aside so that Sabbath is different than every other day of our life. And so everything isn't just all the same, so we have a day that we set apart. God's name, we're told in the Old Testament, to make holy, to set it apart, to treat it different. That there's a difference between praying to God and, and you know, calling a neighbor or calling one of our kids and say, you know, you know, hey, come in from playing outside. But God's name should have some reverence and some respect among us. But then it's not only setting those things apart, it's also setting ourselves apart and realizing that there are things in our life that need to change, and there are decisions that we need to make, and that there are disciplines that we can enter into, so that as we're making decisions and as we're living our lives, we become aware that we have been consecrated. We call these spiritual disciplines. The most obvious of them is prayer. Before we make a major decision, before we cross the Jordan in our own life, are we praying? Like really praying. I don't mean just a quick little prayer, but praying. And seeking God and saying, God, I know this is a tough decision, and I know I need to make it, but I'm going to continue to pray and seek after you before I make this decision. When we look at these spiritual disciplines of consecrating ourselves, there are really two different ways we do it. One, we give up something, and the other, we take on something. So another discipline we can use to consecrate ourselves if we're facing something important in our life is fasting. Might go a meal, just one meal, without eating. And take that time, instead of doing what we normally do and getting together with everyone else, using it to pray, saying, this is an important thing that's going on. I need to cross this Jordan in my life. I need to make this decision. So we take time and we fast. And again, we can use that time then for prayer. Or, or we can go out for a walk, take extra time to read the Scripture. So we give up some things like food. We take on some things like prayer, reading the Scripture, going for a walk. And in the process, we are doing what the Bible talks about, consecrating ourselves. Getting ourselves in the emotional place and in the spiritual place where we know we can make the important decisions in our life and make them with confidence. Amen? Is that how we want to live our lives, with confidence? Do we want to just wander and wonder, am I making the right decisions? Or do we want to feel good about the decisions we make and know that we're doing all we can to dedicate them to God. And that's how we do it. That's how we consecrate. But why? Why was it important for these people to listen to Joshua and pray the night before? And you can just imagine the families were probably all gathered together and having prayer and getting themselves prepared for what lay ahead the next day. Well, why do we do it? Was well, the Bible tells us so that they and we can see wonders, miracles. Because when we put ourselves in the place where we literally put God first instead of ourselves first, where we quit trying to do it Stan's way and start doing it God's way and make the decision to do the things so that we are honoring God, then we get to see God acting. God does for us what we can't do for ourselves. I like to say, I can't, he can, I'll let him. And that's how we start living. And then we start seeing that and God starts showing up in our lives. This is really key to understanding God's will, which is why it's important to not only do this ourselves, but to see how others 
have lived this out in their life. Right here in Plymouth, there is a whole bunch of wonderful historic things that you can go see from Christians in years ago. And one of them that I like to go visit and be reminded of is up on Burial Hill, where all of the people go and visit all of the Puritan graves. There is also a monument to a guy named Adoniram Judson. And a lot of people don't think about Judson, but Adoniram Judson, his father was a pastor here in Plymouth, and for a time, he was a school teacher here in Plymouth. And then he went through a time in his life where he started to doubt his very faith. And he had a friend who had persuaded him that maybe your whole faith and your whole religious stuff is kind of crazy. And he said he'd become a deist, and he just sort of quit believing. And he went through a, a time in which he thought, maybe there is no God at all. And then something awful happened. This friend of his died. And that got Ananiram Judson thinking and really considering what mattered in life. And for the next year, he consecrated himself. He went to seminary. He went to Andover Seminary. And he used the next year to really pray and discern, what does God want me to do? Now, to that point, no American missionary had ever gone out. American missionary movement had not been born yet. And he decided that God was calling him to be a missionary to Burma. Quite a decision. <laughs> that was the crossing of the Jordan in his life. And he spent a whole year praying and seeking God. And he finally, at the end of that, decided to go out as a missionary. He went up to, there's a place in Salem. There's a church, a congregational church in Salem, where he and a few others were sent out. And he's the one who stuck. He spent the rest of his life on the mission field serving God in Burma. He'd made his decision, he knew God was in it, he'd consecrated himself, and now he went forth. What's interesting is sometimes you hear about missionaries that they went to other places to enculturate everybody into learning American culture. Well, Adoniram Judson did not do that. He did the opposite. When he got to Burma, he completely accepted the customs and traditions of the people there, and so that when people came across him, they said he looked and dressed just like anybody else there, and people didn't even know he was from America. He also was very faithful in proclaiming Christ. He also, because he had been an English teacher, was able to be the first person to write the Burmese language, and he wrote a grammar for the Burmese language that's still used today. So if you go to Burma, they know who Adoniram Judson is, even though here in Plymouth, where we should know who he is, we forget who he is. But here's the other thing. He didn't have great success. It's not like he went to Burma and thousands of people came to faith and he was like, wow, this is amazing. 18 converts he had in his lifetime. But he always knew that God was in it and he always knew that he was doing the right thing and he was able to see the miracle because he had consecrated himself, he was committed to God's plan and that's why even today the work that he did is continuing even today. Are we able to consecrate ourselves, to commit ourselves to God? So that when we cross the Jordans in our life, when we make those decisions and we move forward, we can sit back and we can see the miracles. We can see what God's doing. Rather than saying, oh, only 18 people in my entire ministry, do I get to have a ministry of 18 total people? Rather, he's able to see the good things that God does and the miracles that God does and the ways in which he's helping other people and being able to write the grammar and being able to, to start something 
that wasn't only him going out as a missionary, but began the entire American missionary movement from one man. You see, it's all about our perspective. When we put God first in our life, we consecrate ourselves, and then we finally learn to celebrate what matters. Because far too often in life, we spend our time celebrating things that just don't matter. As Dave Ramsey likes to say, and I like to quote him, we spend money we don't have to buy things we don't need to impress people that don't matter. And we wonder why our life is all messed up. We spend all this time celebrating stuff that doesn't matter. And what the children of Israel learn to do is to celebrate what does matter. Which is why we have things like memorials to Anna and Iram Judson so that we can go to Burial Hill and we can go remember things that matter in life. We as a congregation have moved the bell from the Duxbury building. It's sitting over in our parsonage and it's going to be moved over into our memorial garden to remind us to celebrate that for 150 years there was faithful ministry and God showed up in a particular location when people sought to be faithful and spread God's love to others in our Duxbury site. And now that that building will no longer be a church building, it's still good to have a memorial to remind ourselves of when God did work in the past because it reminds us that God continues to do work today. And so it's important to find ways to celebrate these things. Our text tells us the same thing in chapter 4. Where Joshua turns to the people and says, okay, it's, it's the night before, they're all going to go the next day and they're going to cross the river. And he says, take 12 stones from here, out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. When your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. They crossed the river. They began a new life. They were now in, going to be in the place where they were going to spend the rest of their lives. They were going to build homes. They were going to have their families. They are going to raise their families. They're eventually going to build the temple. They were going to finally have the freedom that God wanted them to have. And they also built their first monument. They took 12 stones. It wasn't, it wasn't anything great and fancy. But it was 12 stones. Now, the Bible tells us that these men had to lift and put these stones on their back. I don't quite think that the stones we have here are quite that big. I think we can just sort of carry them in our pocket. Maybe these are more of a ruby-sized stone for her to put on her back. But the point still is, they took these 12 boulders, they moved them, they built this monument, so that later they could go back and celebrate that God had shown up in their life. This providing teaching opportunities for parents. It also provided an opportunity for people to go back and to remember that what God had done in the past so that when we face something today, we can remember what God did in the past. And that's why I say this is also about building our own monuments. Do you have things in your life and places that you can look that you can remember God's faithfulness? We do that in recovery. When, when somebody hits a year, we give them a monument. We give them a little medallion to remind them of how God got them through that last year. If you go into my office, you'll find all kinds of little memorials and monuments I have around of things of active times in ministry or something from my family so that I can look at them and remember what God has done. 
It's important for us to learn to celebrate what God has done and what really matters rather than all the other things because there is so much in life that doesn't matter that gets our attention. And then we wonder why we get discouraged and we have a hard time making our decisions and we have a hard time moving forward. But when we learn that to cross the Jordans in our life, we need to commit ourselves to God's plan. We need to be consecrated ourselves. And then we need to be able to celebrate what matters. Then we're able to not lose heart and not get discouraged when life gets difficult. That's why here in the town of Plymouth, we have the Forefathers Monument. It's located at 72 Allerton Street. Now, on top of the Forefathers Monument is a woman. Does anybody know what her name is? Her name is Faith. When we look at the Forefathers Monument that was built in the 19th century, built in October of 1888, the first thing we realize is it's a testimony to faith and how important faith is. Now, faith is pointing to heaven to remind us to trust in God. In her hand, she's holding something. It's a Bible. Right here in Plymouth, we have a monument reminding us to be guided by God's word and to trust in God. And she's looking directly at Plymouth, England to be reminded of the fact that the pilgrims safely crossed over the Atlantic Ocean. And around faith are four different areas. One is morality, one is law, one is education, and one is liberty. To remind us of values of how God has led people in the past and continues to lead us today and the things that need to be celebrated. Morality and law and education and, and liberty. Under morality are a prophet and an evangelist. Under law is justice and mercy. Under education are youth and wisdom. And under liberty are Little reminders of tyranny, overthrown, and peace. You don't think today we need peace? We need to be reminded of how God has been faithful. There's on the front panel these words, National Monument to the Forefathers, erected by a grateful people in remembrance of their labor, sacrifices, and sufferings for the cause of civil and religious liberty. And so on this 4th of July, as we celebrate our nation, as we are thankful for being Americans, it's also interesting that it's a week that we are reminded of the children of Israel finally getting into the Promised Land, crossing the Jordan River. And what did they do? They built their own monument, their own memorial, to be reminded of God's faithfulness. And I invite you this 4th of July to look in your own life and look in my life and look at us together collectively and truly ask ourselves, are we committed to God's plan or our plan? When we make our decisions, do we do our own best thinking or do we consecrate ourselves so that we know that we're listening to God and doing it his way? And have we learned to celebrate what matters so we can remember the ways in which God has faithfully led us, our families, our nation, our church, so we can continue to see God's blessing today? And I pray that you and your family have an awesome and wonderful 4th of July. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. To us as individuals and to us as a church, to our families, and for all the ways in which you've worked in and through our country. 
we pray that we could see the things that truly matter and celebrate them and learn that so much of the stuff that gets us preoccupied and, and gets our thinking going so negative and critical is not at all helpful. We thank you for leading the children of Israel. After 40 years, they finally crossed the Jordan. Help it not take us 40 years. When there are things we need to decide and directions we need to go, help us to boldly make those decisions and move forward. And may your blessing be upon us today and every day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.